The following CME activity features content presented by expert faculty. These excerpts are part of a certified educational activity titled Update from the Experts, Novel Therapeutic Strategies and Best Practices in Management of FLIP3 Mutated AML. To access the entire activity and complete the post-test, please go online to www.peercme.com forward slash WDM. A printable transcript, slides, and other features are also available. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. Hello, I'm Mark Levis from the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome to this activity in which we're going to review the latest clinical data on FLT3 inhibitors and discuss the practical implications of utilizing these new therapies in managing patients with AML. Joining me today in this discussion are Geert Ossenkoppler from the Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands and Richard Schlenk from Heidelberg University Hospital in Germany. So we're going to start with treatment approaches for FLT3 mutated AML, where we are now and where we're going. And I think we ought to start with um, why do we care? Why do we care about the FLT3 status in anybody? In general, when you have an AML patient who has a FLT3 mutation under whatever circumstances, it's going to make life worse for the patient and often for the clinician. The patient will have a high white count. Uh, you can get them into remission, but they'll have a high relapse rate, poor overall survival. It occurs across multiple different subtypes of AML. It's common with NPM1, but for example, NPM1 by itself is fairly easy to manage, not when there's a FLT3 mutation present. It makes APL harder to manage. So in all cases, I say FLT3 mutations make everything worse. So uh, I think we should start with what do we have now available to treat a patient with FLT3 ITD or FLT3 mutated AML? And I'll start with you, Richard. What do we have? Yeah, so I'm a clinician from Europe. And for us, uh, so Mildostorin was approved also in uh, Europe in uh, 2017. And the other... Um, um, approvals, venetoclax, glasagib, giltritinib, quisartinib are not available in Europe. And therefore, uh, we focus most on mitostorin as a um, FLT3 inhibitor and use it. Yeah. I think that's what we still do in the U.S., believe it or not. Uh, as it seems like the wild, wild west out here. But in fact, I think the standard of care is still widely regarded as 7 plus 3 plus mitostorin uh, for a newly diagnosed FLT3 mutant patient. Uh, but there's a couple of FLT3 inhibitors uh, that are clearly on the horizon, perhaps on the horizon in Europe, but you're well familiar with them. Um, uh, so one of these is giltritinib, which just received FDA approval here in the U.S. in the relapse refractory setting. And the other is quizartinib, which just turned in a positive trial in that same setting. Okay, so it's an exciting time. We've got all these new therapies. But we really still have to go back to the trial data. What are the clinical implications of the clinical trial data for these new agents? Richard, uh, tell us about the ratified trial. So the ratified trial, I think it was a really great trial because it was an inter international approach, uh, US and Europe together. Uh, and also some patients are treated in Australia. And uh, so patients received either mitosaurin or placebo in combination with intensive induction therapy, followed by consolidation therapy, and then followed also by maintenance therapy. 
And uh, the drug is approved, at least in Europe, for all these uh, three phases of treatment, induction, consolidation and maintenance. Yeah, so uh, we have done a follow-up trial after the ratified trial. There we included allogeneic transplantation, as mentioned before, as a good component in this treatment strategy overall for patients with flit-free ITD. And this was followed by maintenance therapy with mylostorin. And there we saw that those patients who um, go on to maintain therapy at least within 100 days after allogeneic transplant, they had a better event-free and overall survival. These data are not based on a randomized comparison. However, if we look at the data which are now presented at the ASH meeting, I think uh, this fits very well that uh, patients with a flat-free ITD benefit from some sort of maintain therapy even after allogeneic transplantation. So turning to patients who don't do so well uh, in the relapse setting, uh, you mentioned that you thought uh, it was perhaps another story with quizartinib getting a label compared to gilteritinib, and so what's that based on? Yeah, quizartinib uh, was tested in a randomized uh, trial. The data were presented at uh, EHA in Stockholm and updated in this uh, meeting. It was a trial done in relapse refractory flit-free ITD positive uh, uh, patients and the comparator arm was intensive chemotherapy. It showed that there was an overall survival uh, benefit. It was a modest one, but you have to take into account that uh, it also has an uh, advantage to use uh, an oral uh, treatment in comparison to a treatment that you can only achieve in, in the hospital. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, a patient who's got relapsed flit-free ITD AML has likely just finished a course of chemotherapy and you're telling them now you have to go back into the hospital and get some nice Ida flag or mech or something awful, or you can take this pill and go home and come back and see me in clinic a couple of times a week. That's a, that's a huge point, I think. And what you have is the gold standard, at least you do have a randomized trial with overall survival as an endpoint. But you mentioned uh, that gilteritinib, which was just uh, given approval quite recently in the US and Japan, is unlikely to have that approach in Europe um, based on this trial. So could you tell us more about um, gilteritinib? Uh, gilteritinib is, is also flit 3 uh, uh, ITD and also TKD inhibitor. So that's different from quesartinib, uh, for example. It's also oral uh, therapy, uh, in my opinion, very well tolerated uh, treatment. But I think the data are not that advanced as for quesartinib. So uh, approval in US is based on uh, CR dates uh, uh, in, in a phase two study, and uh, I, I think that based on that data, it will never be approved in, uh, in, uh, in Europe, unless there are survival uh, data. So you, you brought up the fact that gilteritinib works in the TKD mutant patients, and we saw that TKD mutations arise uh, in the setting of some FLT3 inhibitors. They have, the patient has a FLT3 ITD, you start a FLT3 inhibitor and now they have a FLT3 TKD along with the ITD and they've uh, conferred some resistance. Gilteritinib provides, uh, in, in fact, covers both of those mutations. But it really highlights the differences between gilteritinib and quizartinib, I think. Uh, gilteritinib definitely has a broader level of activity, but some would argue quizartinib is more potent, much more selective. So they're truly very different drugs. I think it's actually a great thing that we potentially might have both of these uh, to work with uh, in the future. 
Yeah, absolutely, and uh, maybe, uh, if you remember, we started with uh, uh, CML, with imatinib, and we were happy that we had one drug, but we have now the availability of four to five uh, very uh, effective TPIs, and that's an advantage because all have their own side effects and, and, uh, and resistant mechanisms, so, and that will be also the case in, uh, in the flutry ITD, so it will be really an advantage to have availability of more than one uh, TKI. Uh, more than one FLIT3 ITD inhibitor. Yeah, yeah. again, uh, uh, arguing about which one is better and when, sure, we're, we can then start doing studies to figure out which ones should be used when, but I think any oncologist will tell you, please give me more options rather than fewer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we three colleagues have known each other for years, and for years there were no drugs approved forever and ever in AML, and we yeah. just you know, were commiserated. But all of a sudden now, drugs are being approved right and left, seemingly, certainly, uh, obviously that's in the US, perhaps a bit more. Um, but another one that's um, really come up recently is venetoclax. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, um, at this particular ASH meeting, uh, venetoclax seems to be all over the news. Everybody is using venetoclax here, there, and everywhere. Uh, Richard, do you have any comment on venetoclax? Is, is it uh, being used in Europe at all? So we are also using it at an individual patient uh, basis. Um, and I think it's really a beneficial um, drug because you, um, it's used and approved for older patients, not fit for intensive chemotherapy. Uh, we are talking about FLIT3. So uh, FLIT3 is uh, currently or is, is frequently associated with the nucleophosphine 1 mutation, so both mutations are present. And especially in these patients, uh, venetoclax may really be a good treatment option in combination with either low-dose cytarabine or hypomethylating agent. Sure. And so I think we're going to see treatment algorithms change drastically where uh, we used to think, okay, I've got an older patient, I can't give them intensive therapy. Now we can potentially put that patient, even with a FLT3 mutation, in remission with venetoclax, azacitidine, or low-dose ARC. They're well enough to try a transplant, uh, perhaps a reduced-intensity transplant. We then uh, are, have the whole maintenance issue. In other words, everything is thrown up in the air. And I think this is a good example of personalized medicine. Uh, what's the disease? Is it low allelic ratio FLT3? Is it a NPM1 present? Is the patient fit or unfit? Um, with all the tools we have at our disposal. Uh, it's a daunting task, but at the same time, it's a good thing. So we've summarized uh, the approval of these new agents. We've talked about the disease. But now, what kind of advice are we going to give to a clinician for, um, to practically manage one of these split-3 mutated AML patients now that you've got uh, some new tools either immediately available or very soon to come along? So I think the challenge now is how are we going to put all of this together? We have a treatment for uh, older, unfit patients. We've got three different potential FLT3 inhibitors. I think we've got a lot of work to uh, cut out for us in the next decade or so. So now we want to talk about the practical management of a patient with FLT3 mutated AML. And I think when we do that, we have to start with making the diagnosis correctly. And for that, uh, we need to know how and when should cytogenetic and molecular testing be done in patients with AML. Uh, in the US, we're all grappling with the complexity of this now. We have cytogenetics, next generation sequencing, and the hotspot mutations. I think it's important for 
uh, practitioners to realize, uh, certainly in the US, that the uh, hotspot mutations are done with PCR, they have a rapid turnaround, and so we're specifically talking about FLT3 and potentially IDH1 and 2. And since they're gonna change management right away, uh, the practitioners should be aware you can get this test back quickly in time to start Mitostorm. So how does this work in Europe, Gert? We try to uh, perform a complete cytogenetic and uh, molecular workup at the diagnosis, so including all the mutations that are important to properly classify according to the ELN risk classification. And for those mutations that we have treatments for now, for example, the FLT3-ITD mutated uh, patients and the IDS1 and the IDS2 mutations, we have a quick turnaround time of uh, 48 to 72 hours. And it's really important to not uh, uh, do these testing only at diagnosis, but also at relapse, because we know that uh, patients that at diagnosis are FLT3-ITD negative can become positive at, uh, at relapse. And so that's a crucial point. So uh, you really can't let your guard down when the patient comes in and you've concluded, okay, they're NPM1 mutated, but FLT3 is negative, phew, it's, it's gonna be fine, and you proceed with consolidation, the patient relapses. The first thing you should be checking for is FLT3, because in fact, we have treatments to immediately apply in the relapse setting. But I think even then, uh, you shouldn't let your guard down. Retesting needs to be a part of the mindset um, for this disease in particular, because if you apply one of these new FLT3 inhibitors, the patient gets resistant, uh, progresses on it, uh, retesting to make sure the mutation is still there. There may now be a tyrosine kinase domain mutation, a new variant on this, and in fact, a different FLT3 inhibitor may be uh, um, appropriate. So retesting throughout the um, the entire time that they're your patient. Okay, so we've got all these new wonderful drugs to work with, Richard, uh, and now you have a newly diagnosed FLT3 ITD AML patient, or FLT3 mutant patient. What do you want to do with them? They're, they're here in your clinic at diagnosis. At diagnosis, um, as you mentioned, I have to know he is positive for a FLT3 mutation. Uh, I have to know whether he is positive for an ITD or a TKD mutation. And then um, if um, the patient is fit for intensive chemotherapy, we start with intensive chemotherapy 7 plus 3 and we'll add the FLT3 inhibitor, which is available in Europe, it's Mildostorin, at day 8 at the end of chemotherapy. And so would you then consolidate the patient or how would you consolidate such a patient? Yeah, it depends a little bit. So um, if uh, we know that the mutant to wild type ratio in a flat-free IDD patient is high, uh, then uh, we think allogeneic transplantation would be a good treatment option for this patient in consolidation. So we have to be aware to um, set up uh, the donor search very early, um, uh, directly after initiation of induction therapy. If a patient has a very low mutant to wild type ratio, it's still questionable whether allogeneic transplantation should be performed in this patient, and then uh, this patient will go to um, conventional con uh, consolidation therapy with high-dose cytotherapy. So, so you mentioned the allelic ratio with this mutation, but I think it's important to emphasize that the addition of mitostorin benefits any allelic ratio. So, so the allelic ratio is a measurement of the you know, tumor burden or the mutation burden within the leukemic population. But the RATIFY trial showed us anybody, it didn't really matter in terms of benefit from mitostorin. It might affect a decision for transplant, but not for the decision to use a FLT3 inhibitor.
Absolutely correct. After transplant or after finish, finishing yeah, therapy, is there a role for maintenance with these drugs? Yeah, in, in, uh, in Europe, uh, mitosone is approved for the total package, so for induction and uh, in maintenance. So we give it in uh, uh, maintenance, and uh, but not after transplant yet. And uh, uh, well, upcoming in upcoming trials that will be done. I think it's a good idea to give it after transplant because we see relapses after uh, allosome stem cell transplant. So what do you do when they relapse now? Well, first then you have to check again whether they are still FLT3 ITD positive or TKD positive uh, or have another mutation that is targetable, uh, so druggable. So uh, again, uh, testing the mutation status is important, but still, if they're still FLT3 ITD positive, I would go for uh, a clinical trial uh, in which uh, one of the second generation TKIs can be prescribed. So here we are in the U.S., we have the luxury of at least one of these second-generation FLT3 inhibitors, gilteritinib, uh, that we can use in this setting. But uh, as we've already talked about, the quantum art trial results suggest that there's certainly a role for quasartinib in this setting as well. Uh, and we hope to see that drug uh, sooner. I suspect we'll see it on our side of the pond a bit quicker, uh, but who knows um, uh, with the nature of the data. So Richard, we're talking about how wonderful these FLT3 inhibitors are, but um, oncologists often uh, uh, dismiss the safety issues of their drugs. Tut, tut, these drugs are fine. What, what do we know about the safety issues of FLT3 inhibitors? Yeah, so for example, um, patients who are taking mitostorium as maintenance therapy really have some, uh, let's say, GI effects, so gastrointestinal uh, side effects. And this, um, so we also see from the clinical trials that they stay on treatment in median only for 10 cycles, so 10 months, uh, and they cannot afford it uh, for a longer time. Uh. So mitostorin can be a little bit hard to tolerate. Uh, what do we know about gilteritinib or quasartinib in terms of toxicity? Yeah, it's, it's uh, myelosuppression, I think, uh, is important. Uh, uh, and I think that is one of the most important uh, side effects and also uh, QT uh, prolongation. But in, I should say in general, the toxicities of all the uh, currently available uh, TKI inhibitors are easily manageable. and uh, Trivial yeah. compared yeah. to the intensive yeah, chemotherapies absolutely. that we've been dealing with. Yeah. They really are pretty yeah. trivial. Uh, quizartinib probably causes some mild myelosuppression because it can, uh, has an on-target effect on our call it an off-target, whatever you will, on CKIT. Uh, there's this whole issue with QTC prolongation, but from a practical standpoint, that's your shrug is just about what every oncologist does with this. Yes, we agree. Yeah. We really have bigger fish to fry. The patient's trying to die on us, uh, and we're worried more about that than, than QT prolongation. We certainly monitor it, but uh, it's... So then how, in fact, do we monitor for these AEs? What, uh, what would you suggest, Richard? You put your patient on maintenance therapy with one of these newfangled drugs. What are you supposed to do now? Yeah, we have to monitor them for myelosuppression. Uh, we have to take blood counts regularly um, in the first uh, four, four weeks, uh, weekly, and then monthly. Yeah. That's pretty much what we do also. Um, and. Uh, um, you know, most of the other uh, adverse events I think associated with these drugs really are more associated with the disease as much as anything. So I think the take-home points for clinicians uh, are that they've got to know the FLT3 status of their patient at all disease stages, diagnosis, relapse, progression. And they've got to realize, and I think they do recognize, new therapies are available, they're emerging, 
uh, and the treatment algorithm is changing right in front of our eyes. And, in, and specifically, I think we can agree, targeted therapies are really improving outcomes in FLT3 mutated patients. Thank you for participating in this peer CME educational activity. To obtain your CME certificate, complete the required post-test and evaluation form.